good is Australia? This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening to us. This is Decode, the Batuta Advocates political podcast. We are going out live on Desert Rock FM with our weekly political segment, and we are out as a podcast, which is probably where you're listening to us, hence the uh, difference in time zones I mentioned there. My name is Wendell Hussey. As always, I'm joined by my my friends, my colleagues, Leslie Burley and Dior Dave, Leslie Burley, how are you today? I'm so ready. We've got a juicy, big episode, season 12, mm. seared either side. I'm ready. Dear Dave? I feel the exact same way. It's nice to be in here. We're recording early in the morning for once, mm. so ready to go. Things on the top of my head. There Let's actually is a lot to talk about this week um, and, you know, time constraints with the the next guys in the drive show. They'll be kicking us out in half an hour. So we'll get straight into it. Clang or a bang out this week. I haven't actually gone for a quote. I've just gone for the appointment of the new governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Michelle Bullock is her name. Um, she's the first woman to ever lead the Reserve Bank. Hashtag girl boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to gauge your guys' thoughts on whether this was a girl boss moment or whether it was just another institution following a fairly well-worn path with just a different face to it this time around. She's been the deputy governor for quite some time in the Reserve Bank of Australia, and she's been in the organisation for over 40 years, um, which is an interesting one given over the last few months we've heard lots about how they want to institute reform and change at the Reserve Bank of Australia, and then they've just promoted the deputy who's been there within the organisation for 40 years. Thoughts, guys? I'm undecided because I want to hear what she has to say, but I am just going to say that she has got a $6 million property portfolio, which doesn't fill me with confidence. Oh, so, well, can, sorry, can a woman not have hobbies? <laughs> I mean, she's absolutely allowed to own as much property as she likes. Oh, wow, uh, you love that glass ceiling, don't you, Leslie Burley? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I am actually the biggest misogynist around town, so <laughs> well I, I, I just don't know about this one. We'll We'll see. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off until she says some things. Yeah, the one thing that's caught my eye is her chat about full employment, which is about how we basically have to have a certain number of people unemployed to maintain this full employment level. Yeah, um, that was it's a like spicy the, take. Yeah, the mm. optimum employment rate. It's a funny one. It's like I talk about economists sometimes being astrologers or tarot card readers. That's an interesting one because. That changed apparently about like 30 or 40 years ago. The thinking changed that rather than just having every single person possible in a job, it changed to this number, which I believe is around 4.5% for the optimum unemployment rate, which they call full employment. And that's about 150,000 more than it is right now. So we actually have a really good unemployment rate at the moment, but it's about 150,000 more to full employment, which is an interesting one. They've tried to draw the Labor government into comment on that and they're not saying anything. I feel like they're saving themselves up. So 
if the Reserve Bank goes for full employment and they want another 150,000 people unemployed, Labor can be like, oh, well, we didn't know about, oh, that's terrible. We don't agree with that, blah, 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 blah. But it's fixed inflation. So, you know, we'll just not say too much about that. We'll claim credit for fixed inflation and blame Michelle Bullock and the governor uh, and the RBA for the unemployment levels. Yeah, it does seem to be a bit of the, you know, saying the quiet part out loud, that Mm. especially like first week (laughs) of the job. You're just coming in hot with these things that like a lot of people kind of knew before, but I feel like most of the general public did really think about that when you hear, you know, unemployment at a record low, unemployment rates doing well, you don't think, well, you know, it has to be there. Mm. Yeah, because if you take that bait and you say unemployment has to be at whatever percent, then you also have to say welfare has to be <laughs> yeah. working to mm. do that. And they don't want to do that. That's that's too much money, too many issues. So, yeah, the quiet bit out loud. Yeah, mm. I like Absolutely. that to Dave. Let's see where the girl boss, Michelle Bullock, leads us to. I'm a bit the same as you. I'm undecided on it. Let's see what happens. Can't blame the RBA for everything. The government does need to take some responsibility for some things. One thing the government is not taking responsibility for is the Fadden by-election loss that happened over the weekend. Not a lot of chat around this, actually, which surprises me because I feel like political reporters and news organisations love a by-election. You know what I mean? There's all the excitement about the main elections, but often there's a long time between drinks. So anytime they can get a by-election, they absolutely love shaving the carrot to it. And, um, you know, the Aston by-election we saw down in Victoria a little while ago, they were all going nuts for it. There were so many interpretations, so much kind of read into it in what is basically one seat in a couple of hundred in the nation. I don't think it's as big a deal as they always make on, but they say it's like a real gauge of where a government's at and where things are at and all that sort of stuff. So that's why there were eyes on the Fadden by-election, which is up on the North Gold Coast there. It was held by Stuart Robert, who uh, (laughs) has some allegations (laughs) of corruption levelled at him, allegations of extremely poor conduct that we're going to talk about in the robo-debt section in a little while. Anyway, he's out. He's off doing his own consulting thing, making good coin doing that. And Cameron Caldwell, who we mentioned a few weeks ago on Mm. the podcast, is in. He won. He beat the Labor candidate quite comfortably. I think they had a 2.8% swing to them, Mm. which is pretty good and much better than the Aston by-election where they got pumped. That's Um, all from what I've heard due to the emojis in his Instagram bio. Well, I was just just about to say his Gold Coast Mm. Suns had a stirring win over the St. Kilda Saints on the weekend as well. So it was a big one for him. Unfortunately... Gold Coast Titans went down to the Parramatta Eels. Oof, was that was one. by a point, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think two great wins for Cameron. One bad win, obviously, in the Titans losing to the Eels. But he's in Parliament. He'll be there. We'll see what happens. The The fallout of it was basically both sides pushing narratives, which they tend to do on these things. Um, before the result on Saturday, Treasurer Jim Chalmers came out saying that he considered anything less than a 4% swing to the LMP as a poor showing for the party and Mr. Dutton, which like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> if a, you don't get a 4% swing towards you. Uh, it's a the smart political move. Yeah. 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 Quiet yeah. bit out loud. I think it's great. If you set the bar for, you know, your opposition, mm. then they just have to 
they just have to make that. And yeah. then you can just make whatever expectation you want and then call them out for not meeting it. 100%. It's real spirit of cricket vibes. <laughs> God. Yeah. And it's, he Look, definitely set it at 4% knowing that they probably weren't going to get 4%. And the argument why they should have got a 4% swing towards them, right, even though they lost the last election as a party, is that sitting governments are always on the nose and it's easier to be in opposition, et cetera, et cetera. So you should get a swing towards you in a by-election as the opposition, which is why the Aston, they didn't in Aston and it was such a big deal. So that's why Chalmers was trying to phrase it as if they don't get great results in the Fadden by-election in the Gold Coast, then, you know, that's a win for the Labor Party, even though it's not a win and they Also, lost. the Gold Coast just does what they want. So oh, they yeah. never really follow the trends. So, I th- yeah. Yeah. Me- yeah. I think read into it at your own peril, but I don't think there's too much to take out of it in terms of solid information that will apply everywhere else. Yeah, the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, came out and said the coalition has nothing to celebrate from this. Um, I don't think this result provides any comfort to the Liberal Party. He said to have a by-election against a sitting government where you only get a 2% swing in an area in your heartland is a very, very, very lethargic result. Fuck, real Baz McCullum vibes. <laughs> they won. They got the result. That's a result. All right. They hold a seat. They move on. A little bit yeah, too much. Yeah, but it's kind it. of like New South Wales winning the third origin match, you know? Like 100%. they win, but you're like, I don't care. That's a great point you raise, Les, because they are talking about how this has so much in it for the future of the party. Peter Dutton's getting excited. He's already talking about next year. Um, I know he's a Queenslander, but he does fit into the New South Wales state of origin mindset mentality. He's saying that um, that result basically was a huge win and it means that David Christofoli will be the next Premier of Queensland next year. He says the Labor experiment is failing Australia. Labor's energy experiment is failing Australians. And this by-election result is an indication that they're going to win next year, even though, as you said, it's a bit of a dead rubber, really, the Fadden by-election. But polling is suggesting he actually probably is right about Christopher Foley. It's very neck and neck at the moment. And, yeah, Anastasia's got a massive fight on her hands. I'd say there might have to be some border closures or she might have to uh, invent yeah, another virus. that she didn't take the Commonwealth Games off of Victoria's hands because I was like, mate, you love stealing yep. a sporting event from another state when they can't pull it off. You love stealing shit from Victoria. Let's go. It was but absolutely no. right for the picking, wasn't it? And she hasn't gone yeah. for it. I mean, there's still time, maybe. She's <laughs> <laughs> we'll just waiting until the, they're really desperate and then act like a huge hero because you gotta, you got to make them want it, you know? Yeah, and then she'll do her classic, how good is Queensland? <laughs> and everything will be fine. Yeah. Love it. Side note to wrap that up, Labor actually only holds five federal seats in Queensland at the moment. You mean Greensland? Greensland. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Greens right. hold three, so. Yeah. Pretty yeah. impressive. So That's yeah, they... because Southeast Queensland and the rest of Queensland are two separate states, <laughs> and you can really, really see it in the voting trends, except for the Gold Coast who do their own thing. Yeah. And then so, you've also got the deep north. Uh, you've got all these different regions. It's a very interesting um, state. It's a multicultural tapestry. Yeah. yeah. It's mm. a beautiful state, and that's why we love it. Now, we'll move on to something we don't love, which was the findings of the RoboDebt Royal Commission, Leslie Burley. Yeah. Look, before we jump into this, I just want to give a really, really brief trigger warning because we will be talking about suicide and mental health briefly within this story because it is an element of the fallout of robo-debt. But essentially the findings from the Royal Commission into robo-debt were handed down the Friday before last. 
It is a scathing report. It's a lengthy and detailed report, and it could be one of the most consequential royal commissions of the decade. We think that there will probably be repercussions, not just for politicians, but public servants, as well as policies and procedures well into the future. I just want to do a quick recap of what RoboDebt is or or was. So from 2015 to 2019, the coalition government ran an illegal debt scheme where they used the information provided to the tax office to check if people had declared correct income earnings to Centrelink. So in theory, the idea was that those who were found to have declared their income incorrectly and therefore received welfare payments when they shouldn't have were then issued with a debt collection notice. Now, There's a couple important things about this concept. One is that all of these debt collections were calculated by a computer, not a human. And so not only was it inaccurate issuing, you know, tens of thousands of debt to people who didn't actually owe money, it was also quite illegal. The High Court found the scheme to be illegal themselves in May 2020. Then Prime Minister Scott Morrison declared that they were scrapping the scheme because it had been found to be illegal. And this happened during peak COVID time. And so I think it took a little while for the public outcry to really blow up, I suppose. Like we were we were deep in that kind of first era of COVID lockdowns then. And so the news coverage, yeah, it just didn't quite get the traction that it is now. And that that's why it may feel like it's this really, really big thing now that that happened back mm. then. So initially it was estimated that a total of $721 million of unlawful debt collections would have to be paid back. Mm. That number has risen to $1.2 billion. And all with all these debt notices, you had to go and prove that you were innocent. Like it flipped the basically the rule yeah. of law. You're guilty. Prove to us that you're innocent based on our incorrect computer algorithm, which we know is incorrect. And anyone who's um, spent any time on the phone to human services, they don't pick up the fucking thing for like two or three (laughs) hours. So every time you're trying to argue things and find things, it takes a long, long time. Yeah, and you're an individual working against a system. And we're talking about historic claims as well. So there were people who were like, I don't remember what I put Mm. on that fortnight of income I did at Red Rooster in 2003. Like, what Mm. are you talking about? Of course And I'm also trying to get a fucking job. I'm in a job. I can't just spend two to three hours during business hours on the phone to you proving my fucking innocence. Yeah. So it was really kind of rigged against individuals, against citizens, essentially. And the human impact was also huge. The Royal Commission identified three people who died by suicide as a result of receiving debt notices, and they believe that there are likely more. Obviously, that's something that's hard to prove. Mm. Yeah. And they believe it's a lot more. They believe it's a lot more because when you look at the sheer volume of money, of course it is, you know. Mm. On top of this, it created a climate where people were shamed for having received welfare payments in the past, which in a society that has been built on things like Centrelink on student allowance, like people just going to uni, Mm, (laughs) you know, were shamed into getting money for doing that. When Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was elected last year, he launched the Royal Commission 
and it was the findings of this commission investigation that were handed down this month. And during this period, uh, Stuart Robert resigned, which is why we had the by-election in Fadden because he was caught up in the hearings and seemed to be quite responsible. So he kind of resigned as the person being thrown under the bus by multiple other people. But to be honest, even though at the time that felt like a really, really big thing, the findings are so huge now that it seems like lots of other people are going to go down for this or potentially could go down for this. So Prime Minister Anthony Albanese held a press conference after receiving the findings and he said the robo-debt scheme was a gross betrayal and a human tragedy. It was wrong, it was illegal, it should have never happened and it should never happen again. Which, yeah, it, it's it's scathing and, and the report itself is quite damning as well. Yeah, it's a thousand pages mm. of just damning yeah. comments and findings and information. A thousand pages of the three public volumes and then there's an additional fourth sealed section which Catherine Holmes, who is the head of the commission, advised stays sealed as to not influence the public or courts during the likely criminal and civil prosecutions that are going to happen, Mm. which we'll touch on in a minute. So, yeah, the report overall itself declared the scheme to be neither fair nor legal. It has proposed 57 recommendations to improve policies around welfare payments, debt collection, and management of servants, public servants in the federal government. It found that public servants who are meant to work for us, the public, instead worked in the interests of the coalition. So public servants are not meant to be politically aligned. They're paid by the taxpayer to act on behalf of the taxpayer. And instead, there were certain public servants that didn't. And one of the big takeaways is that it specifically names Scott Morrison, who when the scheme was devised was social services minister. The report counters Morrison's claims that no one told him or other ministers that it was illegal. It also claims that he allowed the cabinet to be misled as he did not pursue the legal or legislative actions required to make the scheme legal. So they've basically said, yep, okay, Stuart Robert, you resigned and you did this and they've named a few other people, but they've really highlighted Scott Morrison as being quite responsible for all of this. But he didn't like the findings, so he said he refuted them. He said he didn't like them. Yeah, Yeah. he has refuted them, but... It's this not does... even defamation to say <laughs> that, yeah. that they, they were like, you were found guilty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he yeah. just doesn't like it. So That's no. right, yeah. 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 So no, 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 like that's that's a good point to raise, right, is that it's like a royal commission, they can't actually legally prosecute someone, yeah, but they can find someone guilty of something. And so that is why this fourth sealed section is sealed because there's a whole lot of damning evidence and recommendations and uh, information around individuals that have been referred to the Australian Public Service Commissioner, the National Anti-Corruption Commissioner, the Law Society of the Australian Capital Territory and the Australian Federal Police. Yeah, and we're talking criminal charges, which seems like a huge step because quite often it's like slap on the wrist you know a public lashing but this is like there are fucking criminal charges potentially coming for people involved in this yeah and federal criminal charges as well like 
serious, serious stuff. And that doesn't exclude the civil cases that could be brought against these people as well. Quite a few families and individuals have cases that they could argue against these people. There have been class actions uh, conversations as well, but yeah, this, this is gonna this is gonna take up a lot of time and energy in the courts over the next probably five to ten years. Yeah, and we don't know exactly who is going to be facing charges, whether it's people within the public service and the head of human services as the body or whether it's um, politicians, et cetera. Everyone's kind of been vague. Some people are coming out denying. Some people aren't denying. We're not really sure. But, Mm. yeah, obviously those public figureheads, you imagine they might be uh, in the firing line. Yeah. Yeah, and there is an argument for that sealed section to become public in time. So Bill Shorten has said that it's not sustainable for the sealed section to remain secret forever. The Greens want it released within 12 months. So it probably will become public at some stage. But I I do very much understand why it's private right now because it could stop someone from being prosecuted because of content, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want that to happen. We want people to be held accountable. And like you said, we don't know who will be caught up in the legal fallout, but we do know that Scott Morrison's legal costs thus far have been approved by the Attorney General for legal aid, meaning that they have been paid by the taxpayer. Yes, boy. (laughs) So far, coalition members, I think there's about eight of them, have accrued a bill of $2.5 million for their representative legal fees, all paid by us. Love it. So not only did they do something illegal (laughs) and that illegal thing cost us money and cost individuals money and cost lives, we now have to pay for them <laughs> to yeah. try to defend themselves, themselves. about this illegal yeah. thing they did, yeah. which and is the, just the, the other thing as well is they were told it was illegal, then knew it was illegal, and then yes. continued to push it while it was illegal, and continued to push forward and publicly advocate for yeah. it, knowing it was illegal. Oh yeah, yeah and now continue to deny found. that they knew yeah. all of that, yeah. which everyone knew all along as well. And really weird. I don't know if you guys have noticed. I just I can't seem to figure out why, but there's actually not been that much made of the findings of these this Royal Commission, which finds that, you know, it was illegal and cruel and um, there are potential criminal charges coming. Not heaps of reporting about it in, I don't know, the Murdoch Papers. Um, yeah. Mainstream news. Really weird. I can't figure why not a bigger deal and, you know, it's not being drawn out as a massive thing. Um, Well, especially because, you know, your friends in the Murdoch media and, Mm. you know, a lot of the other media in Australia usually are just so empathetic and loving towards welfare recipients. Mm. Mm. So I can't imagine when there's a story like this that comes out that they're not just immediately standing up for, you know, the most vulnerable people in our society. Especially when quite a few of the recommendations in the report are about changing language and avoiding Mm. stigma and shifting perceptions. So, yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's actually those words are verbatim. Yeah, she spoke a lot about that, Catherine Holmes, about changing the way we view it. And as we mentioned about um, full time employment at the top of the episode, that's something that fits in as well. You know, we can't have something like that if we're going to demonize people who we want to be unemployed. Yeah, it feels like another kind of unintended consequence of this is that. It seems like Scott Morrison is not going to give up his seat of cook anytime soon because this report coming out has essentially made him unemployable. You know, he had a chance at getting some cushy job at some bank or consulting agency just after he was prime minister. But Yeah, that's seems the irony, like, right? Yeah, he bided his time a bit too long and now he's just got to stay there. 
multiple times where there have been multiple whispers about him leaving for some high-end job and then usually around that time some massive scandal has come out Hmm. as well. And so, yeah, every time we think he's about ready to go, something else comes out, you know. There was a time where he was had 10 million people's jobs where he was, what, four different ministers (laughs) and that was the other time where he nearly left and then now this time. So, yeah, the irony is that... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, he wanted jobs so badly. He had so many of them and now, Yeah, and you know, now it's going to be really hard for while him. He had them. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, you'd really be sitting around if you were one of those corporations or whatever, considering giving him a job, you really would be sitting around uh, wondering if you want to give it to someone who may or may not potentially, uh, please don't sue me for defamation, end up being criminally <laughs> charged. Yeah, I mean, even by the incredibly low standards of some of these companies like, you know, PwC, as we've spoken about, even for their standards, I feel like Scott Morrison is still just a touch too far. Yeah, they need all the good PR they can get. Yeah, exactly. Just quickly wrapping up on a bit of a voice update. I know we do touch on it fairly often, but it is in the news and it is just generating story after story and the media are latching onto it and making as much as they can out of it. Just thought I'd give a quick update Polling is bad for the yes campaign. It's increasingly going downhill. The no campaign is picking up steam and doing well. Um, The last couple of polls have basically 43% voting yes, 47% voting no, roughly around those areas, and the 10% kind of um, undefined, 10 to 12% undefined. So no campaign in the lead. The essays came out this week. Mm -hmm. The pamphlets should be mailed out to every single home in Australia. They're online but they'll be sent out to all of the homes. They had no fact-checking whatsoever, by the way, these essays, so people could just say whatever they wanted to, which I would argue the No campaign did Mm. in regards to a lot of things. Just like my essays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no... um, no fact-checking. There are some references, but I don't know if they submitted it to turn it in or whatever. Pauline Hanson didn't get to do her essay, which was a bit of a shame. I was looking Devastated. forward to 2,000 yeah. words from Pauline. Yeah. Maybe she'll get an extension. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just the two essays from the yes and the no. I had a quick read of them. I gave it to the no camp in terms of a fight, which is what it is. I, I thought the no camp came out swinging and they played their position pretty well. Basically, they came out and talked about all the things that you kind of anecdotally hear people concerned about, i.e. that it's risky, it's unknown, it's divisive, and it's permanent. That was basically their front page. It's like, we don't know what we're voting for. You don't know what this means. It can basically have wide-reaching effects that we don't have any control over. Again, not fact-checked because that's not correct. It doesn't have veto powers. It doesn't have um, powers to introduce legislation. It's basically an advisory body that provides advice on um, matters affecting Indigenous Australians, and it's a change to the constitution to include them in the constitution um but basically it played up that whole thing about this is a scary thing that's going to take over parliament and control everything and they seemed to do that really well that was basically the seven pages of them was you know they're going to have control over parliament we don't know where it leads judges are going to come out and say that this is taking 10 years of um, legal arguments it's going to bog everything down it's just too risky we want to help indigenous australians but this isn't the way to do it and the yes vote from my summary seemed to be a lot of, I would say, wishy-washy stuff. It, mm. it basically, everyone who would be voting yes, I feel like it, you know, affirmed their views, right? Like, vote yes for a better future, vote yes for unity, hope to make a positive difference. 
that definitely works for everyone who I think is going to vote yes. But I think for people who are like worried about this taking over parliament and, you know, whatever their levels of information and how informed they are on it, that's what people are thinking and that's what people are scared of. And that's what I'm hearing from people is, oh, well, I don't know what it means. I don't know how bad it's going to be. The Yes campaign basically didn't do anything to dispel that. It was just a lot of feel good messages about hope and unity and moving forward, which I don't think is going to swing people around who are considering voting no. It took to pay Page seven for them to say that it won't have veto powers and it won't have the power to pass laws. Page seven, which I think potentially a lot of people are going to be tuned out by then. And that's such a thing that I hear people voicing. I can't believe it took to page seven to point out that it's not going to have that power. And like, this is not me endorsing the no vote. (laughs) This is me (laughs) analyzing the essays. (laughs) But I just think the essay was stronger, like you said, in that it just got to the point. Whereas the yes, like they really just should have launched a counteroffensive saying this is not what it is. This is the disinformation that mm, you are being yeah. told. This is what it is. This is what it will do. And then have a bunch of, you know, all of the public figures and celebrities that are behind it and Indigenous yeah. people that are behind it just saying, hey, this is my personal anecdote. This is this. This is this. You know, but going with the hard facts first, then anecdotal feelings second. Yeah. rather than, like you said, the same talking points that we've been hearing over and over again that clearly aren't working. Yeah, it does seem like, as you said, a lot of wishy-washy language and a lot of like platitudes about it being good and helpful. And it feels like if you're someone who believes that stuff about the voice, you're going to vote yes and you're not going to be persuaded by the no's arguments. But if you're on the fence or if you're a no voter, you're not going to be persuaded to change your mind because of that when the no vote is out here saying these pretty like hard and fast things that it's going to be, you know, overwhelmingly damaging to democracy and things mm. like that. So it just, as you said, it seems like they would have been much better off going on the counteroffensive, putting that page seven stuff up front and saying the no vote is telling you lies, they're talking shit, and this is what it's actually going to do instead of just being like, yeah, it's going to be great, don't worry about it, we're going to have a great time with it. Yeah, the no vote are if you don't know, vote no. Yeah. Whereas the yes vote could have been, we do know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vote we yes. do know. Yeah, it's not going to undermine our parliament that. and destroy yeah. everything. Anyway, essays are coming out. You'll be able to read them sometime soon. Let us know what or you not. reckon. Yeah, <laughs> or not. Um, yeah, you're better you off just 4, reading some words some spare Facebook in your ads. weekend. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fair enough. Bit of um, Leanne Moriarty instead. Anyway, that's about it for this week. Thank you very much. Thanks for your company. Always a pleasure to talk to you and we'll be back at you again soon with what's happening in the world of politics. To your Dave, Leslie Burley, go well. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.